0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Nehemiah chapter 5. It's found on page 401 in the Bibles there in your rows if you'd like to turn there and follow along as I read. Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, "You are exacting interest each from his brother." And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, "We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us." They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, "The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nation, taunt of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out of the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year To the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also preserved in the work on this wall... And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on his people. Remember for my good, oh my God, that all I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Well, we have been, uh, my name's Josh, by the way, one of the pastors here. Um, we've been looking uh, just over the last few weeks um, at the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and the setting is it's uh, 445 BC Jerusalem had been destroyed about 140 years earlier a lot of its citizens carried off into exile by the Babylonians and Nehemiah is one of these exiles or actually more proper to say he's the child of exile so he's the next generation down of the exiles. And after the Babylonians came the Persians. The Persians conquered the Babylonians, and so Nehemiah actually grows up living and working in the Persian Empire. And he has an important job. He's the cupbearer to the king. He gets word of how things are going back in Jerusalem not well, and so he has this uh, crazy ambition. You know, we're going to go back, and we're going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, a task that seems virtually impossible given the climate, given the opposition, given the responsibility of his his own work in Persia, but he does it. He leads a group to take on this extensive rebuilding project. And in a sense, then, he's not only just rebuilding the city, but he's rebuilding the infrastructure of the very people of God, so to speak. And so this book, Nehemiah, becomes kind of a masterclass for us in resourceful leadership. In each chapter that we've been through so far in this series, Nehemiah has had to address a different problem. Chapter 1, it was what you might call a personal problem. He hears about the ruins in Jerusalem, the failures of the previous rebuilding efforts. He wrestles with this personally, maybe like some of you do when you hear about a problem, hear about a need, hear about something that should not be, and and then you begin to ask the question, do I have a part to play? What is my calling here? Chapter 2, it's a political problem. How can he Convince the king to let him undertake this project. Chapter 3, it's an administration, an administrative problem. How do we deploy people to actually get this work done? Chapter 4, a physical and psychological problem dealing with opposition. Nehemiah has made enemies during this project. There's people who don't want this to happen, which is discouraging for sure and actually quite dangerous as well. And then here we are in chapter 5. And Nehemiah begins to deal with what you might call a social and economic problem. There is some real suffering in this community, serious inequities of which are at the root of those problems. And it really is interesting to compare what Ryan talked about last week in chapter 4 with what we're dealing with here today in chapter 5. In chapter 4 it was opposition from the outside, right? Criticism from the outside, uh, discouragement, obstacles from the outside, and the effect of which was a galvanizing, unifying effect on the people of God. And isn't that the way it often is, right? Opposition from the outside, discouragement from the outside, criticism from the outside actually brings people together, actually moves the mission forward in some ways because there's a, a new cooperation, a new sense of unity and strength. People commit to the mission ever more. But in chapter 5, it's discord on the inside. Trouble on the inside. And what happens then? Well, this is the one chapter in Nehemiah where you hear almost nothing about the walls, right? The work grinds to a standstill. No mention of rebuilding. And instead, Nehemiah has to chair a meeting, which is like the most Presbyterian thing ever. Nehemiah has to get this figured out as a matter of what's right and true and compassionate and just, but also it's the only way possible to move forward with the mission. And so this morning we're going to talk about the problem that's happening here amongst those doing the rebuilding. And then we're going to talk about the various ways that Nehemiah addresses this problem. All right, so let's get into the text a little bit. The problem, first, you see it right at the very beginning, starting with verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now these troubles, these burdens, uh, they're very real. You have to understand, right, to undertake this work, the people had to make... Tremendous sacrifices to do this. This was a step of faith for everybody who was involved in this rebuilding effort to go and spend 60 days working on the walls. Every one of them is leaving something behind in order to do this. And remember, this is not the days of uh, of liquid assets and savings accounts and dual incomes and PTO, right? You don't have any of that here. So if you leave your trade, if you leave your craft, if you leave your farm, eventually it's going to hurt. And so we're at the pinch point here in this project. Everybody's starting to feel it. And people are starting to think, all right, walls are great, but you can't eat walls. And so we need to address this. Now, probably everybody realized this was going to be this way eventually, right? That there's going to be sacrifices, there's going to be burdens to bear. But there are a few other things, three other things actually, that made this sacrifice virtually unbearable. There's a famine, it says, in verse 3. There's high taxes from Persia, in verse 4. And then loan sharks, in verse 7. And the famine, well, it may have been during this period of actually the rebuilding of the walls. But actually, more likely, it probably was a famine that happened a few years before this. Meaning then that the reserves that everybody had were at a low point to begin with. So, in other words, they had less margin to deal with the difficulties that were always going to be there. What was already going to hurt, right, now is going to hurt all the more. The taxes, well, all right, we all don't love taxes, right? But one of the more demoralizing aspects of being a conquered people, right, having a a, a foreign government oppressing you, or just ruling over you for that matter, uh, the Persian rule, one of the more demoralizing aspects of it was the draining away of local resources from the province to go and then finance imperial efforts way back in Susa, the capital of Persia. So, local money, in other words, is going out and being used for the interminable succession of projects coming from the court in Persia, and sometimes military campaigns and further conquests. Local money taken out and divested across the empire. But frankly, both of those things are largely out of Nehemiah's control. It's the third thing that he really addresses, that he takes square aim at here as he's talking to the people. It's these greedy merchants who are profiting off of the misfortune of others. Now, I call these loan sharks, and I'm sure maybe there's a better word for it here, but these are folks who are willing to inflate the price of grain for people who have nowhere else to go. In other words, they're willing to price gouge because they know that's, What you got to do, you got to eat, right? These are folks who are willing to sell food, but they're willing to do it in exchange for your land as collateral. And so what you have is a situation where basic necessities are out of reach for normal people. People then are mortgaging their fields, mortgaging their vineyards and their homes in order to raise money just to feed their families. I've been reading um, a book called uh, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. Some of you may remember this from school growing up. I've been reading it alongside my, my daughter's sixth grade class. And uh, it's a great book. It's a novel by Mildred Taylor. follows the struggles of a black family in the 1930s in Mississippi. A family called the Logans. And I want to read to you just a, a little portion of the book. Uh, it's actually just something I read this last week. And the context here is the, the Logans are trying to... Uh, they're talking with another family, the Turners, and they're trying to figure out a way to buy supplies uh, from a different store. There's one store that's owned by a white family, a particularly racist white family, and so they are uh, trying to figure out, is there somewhere else we can go in order to, uh, to buy the things that we need, where they won't be mistreated, where they won't be cheated. And here's just a little bit of the dialogue. Mama nodded solemnly, and then she said, for the past year now, our family's been shopping down at Vicksburg. There are a number of stores down there, and we found several that treat us well. Vicksburg? Mr. Turner echoed, shaking his head. Lord, Miss Logan, you ain't expecting me to go all the way to Vicksburg. That's an overnight journey in a wagon down there and back. Mama thought on that a moment. What if someone would be willing to make the trip for you? Go all the way to Vicksburg and bring back what you need. Won't do no good, reported Mr. Turner. I got no cash money. Mr. Montier signs for me up at that Wallace store so as I can get my tools, my mule, my seed, my fertilizer, my food and what few clothes I need to keep my children from running plumb naked. When cotton-picking time comes, he sells my cotton, takes half of it, pays my debt up at that store and my interest for that credit, then charges me 10 to 15% more as risk money for signing for me in the first place. This year, I earned me near $200 after Mr. Montier took his half of the crop money, but I ain't seen a penny of it. In fact, if I manages to come out even without owing that man nothing... I figures I've had a good year. Now who way down in Vicksburg going to give a man like me credit? Mama was very quiet and did not answer. It's easy to see how systems and practices like this can be cooked in that would keep someone in poverty or drive them further into it. And just as in 1930s Mississippi, by the letter of the law, these things may have been legal in Nehemiah's day. To which Derek Kidner says, the Bible commentator, he says, in hard times, legal rights, they say nothing of wrongs, can deal mortal blows. Exorbitant interest rates, predatory loans, is actually one of the things the prophet Ezekiel labels an abomination in Ezekiel chapter 22. And we see the effect of this when you get down to verse 5 in Nehemiah chapter 5. Now our flesh is, is of the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children... Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So, to buy food, they had to put up their land as collateral. And then, when they couldn't pay the interest on those loans, right, they lost their land. And at that point, what do you have left to sell in order to buy food? They sell their children into servitude. Debt slavery was common enough in other parts of the ancient Near East, but not in Israel. And notice the outcry about who is profiting from this. Verse 1, there was a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Verse 5, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. See, they're supposed to be families. A nation together under the rule and reign of God. Brothers and sisters in the same covenant community. And some are getting rich off of the others. So how does Nehemiah respond to this? Let's talk about justice and generosity for a moment. All right, first we see in just a passage there from verse 6 down to verse 13. Nehemiah responds... Really, in a holistic way, with his heart, with his head, and with his will. Emotional distress is followed by intellectual reflection, which in turn leads to practical action. All right, first, his heart, right? It says he was angry. Verse six I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, and rightfully so. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Notice Paul says, Be angry. There is a way to be good and angry. Not all anger is bad. We know that. The scriptures teach consistently that Jesus did not sin. And yet, there are stories in the Bible where Jesus is clearly angry. Turning over tables in the temple It's one of those examples. John Stott put it this way. He said, there is such a thing as Christian anger. And too few Christians either feel or express it. Indeed, when we fail to do so, we deny God, damage ourselves, and encourage the spread of evil. You'd be right to be angry if someone you loved was attacked. In the face of evil, we need more anger, not less. When we see injustice in the world or in our city, we should be angry. When we see poverty and racism and violence, we should get angry. Angry when human life is not valued, whether it be the infirm or the unborn or the elderly, we should be angry. When we hear that there are 153 million orphans in the world for a myriad of causes, we should be angry. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates evil, we should too. And that's what Nehemiah does here. Now that said, let me just say, we do have to be careful with anger. Because anger is also one of those so-called seven deadly sins. Those things that are most likely to eat you up, tear you down, cause you to harm others, poison you in such a way that you actually begin to sin against other people. And the reality is, all too often, the anger that we nurse is not born out of righteous indignation at the wrongs that are done to others. Instead, it's wrath at our will being thwarted. And so the Apostle Paul warns in that very next verse in Ephesians 4, give no opportunity to the devil. Some translations actually say, uh, give the devil no foothold. Those of you who are rock climbers, right? How important is a foothold? Really, really important, right? If you have footholds or handholds, Uh, If you're climbing a wall, you make progress, right? And if you don't have those, you don't make progress. And so it is with the devil, right? He's your enemy. He's got a mission. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy uh, the church. He wants to destroy the cause of Christ. And so if he has a place to put his foot and get leverage, he will use it. And anger is often that. Be careful with anger. There's a way to be good and angry. The Bible says be careful with it. Anger and injustice is the right response. But even here, it's not a sufficient response. Then Nehemiah begins to to think, right? He uses his head. He begins to reason from the Scriptures. Verse 7, I took counsel with myself. Some translations have it, I mastered my feelings. Anger at injustice is the right thing, but it can't be the only thing. He begins to think. I took counsel with myself. Now what is he what is he thinking about? Really I I don't know. The text doesn't tell us for sure but whatever it is it leads him to verse 7 bring charges against the nobles and the officials. He says you are exacting interest each from his brother. Now most of the commentators think that probably what he was thinking about is he was going back and rehearsing God's law. He's investigating God's law. He emotionally reacted, but now he goes back and he begins to think it out scripturally. And where would he go in the Bible? Probably to the book of Leviticus, which was meant to govern the children of Israel, their life together. And specifically, Nehemiah may have looked at Leviticus chapter 25. I want to read to you just a little bit of it this morning. Leviticus 25, starting with verse 35. Moses writes, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no, listen to this, take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. In other words, when somebody's in a hard place, you should not be thinking about how this could benefit you, right? Your consciousness should not be around, your uh, 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 practice should not be about profiting off of those who are in a hard place. Instead, it says, think about kindness and grace and mercy and hospitality. This is what you would do, uh, Moses writes, this is what you do for strangers and aliens in your land. How much more so then for your brothers and sisters? But then he goes on. Why treat them like this? Well, because that's what the Lord has done for you. Verse 38, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. This is what you might call gospel-centered ethics, even all the way back in Leviticus, right? What's he saying? He's saying, we have a generous God. Now go and do likewise. We have a God who is generous to you. You are the beneficiary of a gift. Now go and do likewise. Verse 39, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Jubilee year is the year in Israel when debts were forgiven, land was Restored to its original owners. And then again, here, what's the rationale? Why? Verse 42 For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. And do you hear what God is saying there? He's saying, You cannot make slaves out of a people that I've made free. You cannot make slaves out of a people that I made free. And we heard all kinds of historical rationalizations in our country for slavery that Christians made. Just a cursory reading of Nehemiah five or Leviticus 25 ought to make all those things fall away into dust. Nehemiah studies scripture. He sees the depth of poverty, had called for gifts, not for loans, hospitality, not usury, kindness, not price gouging, mercy, not slavery. He reacts with his heart. He's angry. He reacts with his head. He takes counsel with himself. He studies scripture. And then finally, with his will, with a call to action. And I held a great assembly. He calls a meeting. And at this meeting, at this assembly, he first appeals to their conscience, verse 8. He said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have sold us to the nations, but you even sell your brother's that they may be sold to us. In other words, what he's saying here, don't you remember, we all pooled together, we were generous, we made sacrifices wherever we could, however we could. When we knew there was an Israelite in slavery to somebody from the Gentile nations, we would do everything we can to buy their freedom. But now, you're selling them back into slavery again. You're selling your own countrymen. This should trouble the conscience. And it does seem to have that effect. It says they were silenced and could not find a word to say. And maybe this is the reason for the public nature of this meeting. right? What was once in the darkness is now brought into the light. And there's a shame then at having this exposed, right? Of having participated in this. These deals that looked really smart and crafty that you could rationalize by yourself, alone, outside of public view, now look impossibly shabby when brought to the light of day. And it is important to remember, there will be a day, Jesus said, when every deed that's done in darkness will be brought into the light. Light will be shed on everything that we have done. And the question we all ought to be asking ourselves is will there be things that we justify now that will be exposed as callous or insensitive or predatory in the end. So he appeals first to their conscience, but then secondly, there's an appeal to theology. Verse 9, So I said, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Now, what is the fear of our God? The best way I know to explain this is to... um, to say that you know what you fear is that thing that's in your mind that takes up all your headspace, right? What, what you're fearing at any given moment is the thing that's sort of taking up your attention, right? It's it's filling up your head. I'll just give you an example. Um, I do not like mice at all, right? I uh, I don't think they are cute. I hate their tails. Uh, I don't want them near me. I don't want them living in my house in any way, shape, or form. And as it turns out, over the last five years, we've had dozens and dozens of mice. Now, when there's evidence that mice are around, they take up a lot of my headspace. I think about them a lot. Any creak in the house, anything that I hear, any scurrying... I assume, usually my kids are scurrying about, I assume it's the mouse, I'm looking for the mouse, I'm afraid of the mouse. Usually in the mornings, I'm the first one downstairs, 5 a.m., it's dark, I am thinking about making as much noise as possible on the way down the steps in the hopes that if there are mice, they will scurry away. I peek around the corner in really weird ways just to make sure that I see them first is my thought. I'm often wearing, again, five in the morning, I'm wearing not just socks, but shoes and often boots, just to prevent the the chance that one of these is going to scurry about my feet. Uh, Point being, right, what you fear takes up a lot of what you're thinking about. takes a lot of your consciousness. takes up a lot of your headspace. And this is true of weird phobias, like me with the mice, but also with more positive things, right? Like, Another fear that I have, I think a a better fear, is I have a fear of not loving my family well, right? In in the sense that we're talking about it here, it's something that takes up a lot of space in my mind. I think about, I don't want regrets, right? I only have my kids in my house for a certain amount of time. I don't want to look back on this with regrets. I don't want to look back on not supporting my wife well with regret. And so you could say, I, I have this fear of not Uh, loving my family well, so I'm thinking about it a lot. I'm asking myself, what does it mean to love them well in this situation or this day or this period of time? But most of all, we're to fear the Lord. We're to walk in the fear of the Lord, which means we're to have him always on our mind, always front and center of our consciousness, thinking about his character, reverencing his uniqueness, receiving his mercy, reflecting his life, pursuing his will, obeying his word, And this is what Nehemiah is calling them to, to walk in the fear of our God. Thirdly, he makes an appeal to mission. Verse 9, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Why? To prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. You see, part of Israel's calling, part of their vocation in the world, was they were meant to show the world what God is like. That's our calling as well, as Christians, as the church. Right? To show the world what God is like. But listen to what one commentator says. Raymond Brown says this. He said, who would believe that Israel's God was kind, merciful, and compassionate when his worshipers were cruel, merciless, and mean towards the people he loves? Let me read that again. Who would believe Israel's God was kind, merciful, and compassionate when his worshipers were cruel, merciless, and mean towards the people he loves? Failing in that responsibility, he's making now appeal to mission. And the flip side of this is is true as well, right? On on the positive side, a consistent, credible, faithful presence can be salt and light in the world, to use Jesus' words. Years ago when I was living uh, in the Netherlands, working in campus ministry, uh, there was a professor from Miami University who is uh, over there doing a, a Fulbright scholarship teaching at Leiden university where we were working with uh campus crusade and so we had this man over for dinner this professor over for dinner and i he's in the history department and so i I knew somebody from the history department a man named edwin yamauchi and uh, i asked him uh, you know what do you what's it like what's he like what's edwin yamauchi like uh, to work with in, in, in the department. And this professor said, well, you know, I mean, uh, Dr. Yamuchi, I mean, he does great scholarship. Everybody knows that. By the way, Edwin Yamauchi is a w- really well-known Christian, helped to found a church up there that I attended for a while when I was in, uh, at school. And the professor said, oh, yeah, you know, everybody knows he's a good scholar. He does good work. Can't dispute that. But we all kind of roll our eyes at his Christianity. We all kind of mock him, tease him behind his back. But on the other hand, he said, you know, he's, Come to think of it, the only guy in the department that any of us trust. We call him in to mediate our disputes because he's the only one that we believe is honest and fair. And he looked at us, this professor looked at us, almost like he'd never thought of the irony of this before and said, You know, that's weird, isn't it? We all make fun of him, but he's the only guy we really don't want to leave the department. The whole thing would fall apart without him. Are you light like that? Are you salt and light like that in your workplace? in your school, in your neighborhood, showing people what God is like. Nehemiah calls them to this kind of witness and mission. And then finally, in verses 10 to 13, he calls them to a kind of decisive action. He says, give up the exacting of interest. And by the way, he says, "Uh, where I've been wrong, I need to do some repenting here too. I'm going to stop this as well. Give up, he says, the exacting of interest, taking advantage of, of someone else's rainy day, taking advantage of somebody else's hard place. And then he says, do it this very day. In other words, leaving no room for postponement or second thoughts or later rationalizations. Do it this very day. And then he makes their promises official. He calls in the priests and he has them swear these things before the priests. In other words, changing this from a verbal promise to an official oath. This is like taking a contract, a binding oath. And then lastly, he gives them a visual aid. As a kid, one of my um, chores at home uh, after dinner was to take the tablecloth and uh, if there were crumbs on the table, I'd have to sort of pick up the tablecloth, take it outside off the back deck. Maybe some of you had this chore as well, right? And shake off the crumbs off the back stoop or the back deck uh, to get rid of the crumbs. This is what Nehemiah does here, right? He shakes out his garment and then he says, if you don't follow through on what you have promised here today, God is going to shake you out. You're in the house of God now by his mercy and grace. You're in God's family. But if you break this promise, you're going to be shaken out into the cold. And Nehemiah's response is a call to justice. It's proactive. It's declarative. But he also leads by example. He leads with a generous life. And that's what these last few verses are about, verses 14 and 19. And we see very quickly here, he lived below his means. He had been, we learn now, appointed governor, right? Not just to rebuild these walls, but governor of this province from uh, the Persian empire. And he had been the governor as as such. He's then entitled to certain rights and privileges, but Nehemiah says he was willing to forego these things. Verse 15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. The previous authorities, they utilized their position as if your life to benefit me. And that's the way power typically works in this world, right? Your life To benefit me, but Nehemiah says, No, for him, it's my life, my position, my authority, my privilege to benefit you. Verse 16 says he didn't use his position to pad his wealth. He didn't grab, rather, he gave. Verse 17 and 18, he's constantly showing hospitality, he's inviting others in. It says he regularly had dinner parties, people over to be fed hundred and 50 people at a time, and he documents what this cost him in sheep and oxen and birds and all kinds of wine in abundance, it says. I want to go to those dinners. In this way, Nehemiah foreshadows for us the person and work of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 puts it this way. The Apostle Paul wrote, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Jesus lived below his means. He went from the highest heaven down, down, down to take on flesh, to walk among us. He did not come to be served, but to serve. It was not for Jesus, your life to bless me, but rather he emptied himself on the cross, my life to benefit you. And even now, in his great hospitality, he invites us to commune with him at his table. If Nehemiah's example is inspiring, how much more so than the one to whom he points? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And for some of us, just as we wrap up here, for some of us here this morning, it might be the the justice and the generosity and grace and mercy and kindness and love and hospitality of Christians that drew you into the church. I've heard a lot of stories from folks here where that was what happened, right? That was, it was the power of someone's life or it was the power of a community of people loving you well that led you to think, maybe there's something to this. Maybe there's something to Christianity. And that's the way it's supposed to be, actually. I and mean, I'm grateful that it still happens. Very often we hear those kinds of stories. But I also know that some have stayed away or been driven away when Christians have not done this well, have not been Salt and light. And yet, somehow, Jesus is still compelling. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking right now, you know, I'm not sure about Christians. But Jesus, I'm interested in Jesus. And if that's true for you, I'd love to talk to you about that. I want to invite you to keep coming back. Because that's what we want to do here. More than anything else is we want to celebrate Christ. Spotlight Christ. Talk about Christ. Show other people Jesus Christ, who is infinitely great in his mercy and love and hospitality. Let's pray together, and then we'll continue to worship this morning and come to the Lord's table. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that as we continue to consider this text and sit in your presence and with your people this morning that you would help us to understand these things better, to see more and understand more of your heart for the world and your heart for your people, what you'd like us to be. We pray that we might take up this mantle of being salt and light in the world, that other people would see you and get to know your character through us. We pray that you would make us into a community of love and justice and generosity to make us a people of hospitality and grace would you do that even this morning as we come and celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a moment as we continue to sing and worship you? Would you meet us in our need this morning? Would you transform us so that we might invite others into this great story, this community of faith that you are building? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcity.cincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.